Good morning. Glad you're here today and uh, trust your season of celebration is growing and it's getting better all the time. Keep in mind our Christmas Eve services start at 3 o'clock on Christmas Eve and uh, on Christmas morning we'll meet at uh, 9, 30, 11 in the sanctuary. So uh, I hope you can uh, be a part of that day as well. We'll have great celebrations together, I trust. It's great just to be Christians, be believers in Christ, followers of His. It makes all the difference in the world and our celebration this time of year. Welcome to those of you who are guests as well. We're glad you're here. And if everybody take a moment and fill out a connection card and put it in the basket and was passed later on, we really appreciate that. Uh, last week, you saw a video clip of Riley Weaver, our missions minister, uh, offering to lead uh, two mission teams next year to Spain and to Mexico for adults interested. And remember, that meeting is at 12.15, right after this service in the hub, if you're interested. I don't think it'll be a very long meeting, but uh, for those of you, just you have questions and interest, doesn't mean you're signing up for anything, you just show up. And uh, also, I wanted to let you know, on Christmas Eve, we always have receptacles at the doors for an offering, and all the money given this year will go to Active Grace as they reach the homeless in our ministry area and help them get back on their feet again. So you might keep that in mind in your Christmas preparation as well. Before we do anything else, let's pause to pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for what we're able to sing today, what we're able to consider in your word the challenge it has for us in our life today that is so relevant. And I pray today um, we will be ready to be who you want us to be. Thank you. Thank you for making yourself known to us, for revealing your plan for us. I pray that we will desire always to be in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah 35 is where we are. Um. I wanted to tell you one more. Oh, I know what I just wanted to say. Last night and tonight, uh, our, our, our musical for Christmas called Behold the Lamb. If you, if you didn't come last night, try to come tonight at 7 o'clock. My heart is still full this morning from uh, those who were here last night. How many of you made it last night? Yeah. Am I saying the right thing? Yeah, it was just such a blessing. So uh, if, if you can come tonight at 7, you're going to be blessed. It's just going to help you uh, celebrate this Christmas season as the whole story of Christ's coming is, uh, is laid out for us. This is a Norman Rockwell painting. How, how many of you uh, experience home like this? <laughs> you know, you're the door, grandma and grandpa are there, brought their presents, everybody's happy and up, and it's a, it's a mountaintop day. You know, if that's your family, if that's your home, good for you, praise the Lord. But there are a lot of homes uh, where the Christmas season is not like that, where Christmas Day is not like that. There are a lot of homes that have in them pain and some separation. There are some hurts that are going on. Maybe it's the first Christmas without someone, or maybe the finances aren't as good this year as they were last year. Maybe there's uncertainty in looking at the new year. Uh, there could be all kinds of things that, that, that create an atmosphere of tension at the Christmas season. Studying Isaiah speaks into our lives because it's about a people that are just not at rest. That, that, that home isn't what they want it to be. In fact, they're worried about the condition of their home and where it's headed. That they're, they, they want life as it ought to be. And many here this morning dream as of a life that ought to have been or should have been or once was and is no more. And those are hard realities to deal with. And if that's true of you, then I think you'll be able to relate to this passage of Scripture that, that was written 
700 years before Jesus was ever born, and yet speaks into our lives today. It speaks of a future day. If you have your Bible opened, it says at the beginning of probably, it says, the joy of the redeemed. And that's about us. It's about those who get to, of us who get to live when we do today. It's a, it's a story about God and his people, and that's what we'll look at first. It just, we're we're going to look at it in its context. And these 10 verses of Isaiah 35, what are these about? What do they have to do with us? Uh, the more We have to start with the context first, and then we'll, we'll talk about what does it mean for all the world, and what's it mean for you and me today. That's where we're going. So let's start with the story of God and his people. That's what this is, these first 10 verses. Let's just walk through them. First of all, we have the glory of God. That's verses 1 and 2. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Now let's back up for a bit. Why this prophecy is being written is because the the nation of Israel is about to be in shambles. God's people, Israel, is divided into two lands. The northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. There was friction under a previous kingship, and they divided. Through the years, they have grown weak in their spirituality. They have grown lame spiritually. Their leaders are weak. They are only going through the formula of worship. Therefore, the people have no real spiritual leadership they are rebelling against God. They, they have no heart for him. There's just a small remnant of people exist that really love the Lord with all they have and are deeply concerned for his people. When Isaiah, what Isaiah has been proclaiming up to chapter 35 is that God's land is going to be ravaged. He says the Assyrians are going to come in And they're going to wipe you out. And what the Assyrians would do, they would come in, conquer the land militarily. They would take away the cream of the crop, the best of the best, to their homeland and re-educate them into the life of Assyria. That was going to happen. The northern kingdom would be gone as they knew it. Some 150 years later, the Babylonians would come into the southern kingdom and they would do the same thing, laying waste to the land there. Basically, God's people, the nation of Israel, was going to be wiped out as they knew. The remnant knew this. And so when Isaiah writes chapter 35, he's writing to them to keep courage, to to, to remember that, that God has spoken and he's true to his covenant and so he speaks here about, um, about, this, about uh, cedar, about Lebanon. Lebanon is known for its cedars. Uh, Carmel is known for its great oaks. Sharon is known for its beautiful flowers. So he's picturing a future time when the land, after it's ravaged and devastated, will bring forth life again, will bring forth fruit. There's going to be good things that are come. God's going to remember his people. And he says here, you know, why is that going to happen? Blossom and shout for joy. Because they're going to see the glory of the Lord. Now, the Jews were familiar with the glory of the Lord because they, have, they remembered in the history of their people when they left their slavery in Egypt, What happened? They were led by the cloud of God by day and the the pillar of fire by night. That was the glory of the Lord. 
Later, when, when Moses went on Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai to meet with God, what happened? The cloud came down from heaven and shrouded Mount Sinai. The mountain shook because God was there. They knew that was the glory of the Lord appearing before them. Later, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and then the temple in a visible way. All these were expressions of the glory of God, but all of them pale in contrast to John's gospel when he writes the biography of Jesus, and he said, the word that is God himself became flesh and lived up for a while among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That, that was the true glory, that God would come and live among his people and bring home. That's what Isaiah is talking about. He's talking about a future time when the Messiah was going to come into the world and the glory of God was going to be made known. Second, he talks about the work of God in verses three to seven. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Now, the point is, there are some who are in the remnant whose faith is fully alive. Some in the remnant are wondering, has God forgotten us? I mean, I, I don't think any, anything good can come to our people now after the way we've treated God. So the weaker ones, or the stronger ones are saying to the weaker ones, look, strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs, and the haunts where jackals once lay, grace and reeds and papyrus grows. You know, in Isaiah's day, some people got this and some didn't. Just like today, some get the gospel, some don't. So when Jesus made his appearance at age 30, he began his public ministry. And what did he do? He started, he, he started causing the lame to walk and the blind eyes were open and lepers were cleansed. The dead were brought back to life. He was this great miracle worker. But the interesting thing about the text that Isaiah writes, he says he's going to come with vengeance and divine retribution. And when I think about that, I mean, there's nothing about, there's nothing about Jesus that came that way. For God so loved the world that he came and, came, uh, came and he gave his life that anyone who believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For, for God sent his son of the world not to condemn the world, it says, but to save it. So here is this loving Jesus, this gentle one. He's never harsh with anybody except for the hypocritical leaders. What, what is this divine retribution? He did come with divine retribution, not to give it, but to take it on himself. And in taking on divine retribution because of our sins, yours and mine, we are able to be free. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Waters gush forth, prophetically, Isaiah says. How can, I, how can we not help but think about Jesus sitting down at that well in Sychar and engaging the Samaritan woman in conversation? He starts talking to her about living water. And she says, what are you talking about? He says, this living water I give you will well up into eternal life. What a great prophecy this is. And then he speaks of the way of God in verses 8, and 10, 8 to 10. He says, a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. 
wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, no, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Isaiah depicts the life of the redeemed as life on a highway. When Jesus was here, he said, I am the way. There's no other way to God except by the Father, but there are lots of ways to Jesus. Let me tell you about this way as Isaiah outlines it. He says it is a raised way. That's what this highway in the Hebrew, that's what it means. It means a road that has been lifted up in a way that everybody can see it. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. You know, we make highways. We, highways are built so that there are all kinds of on-ramps. And if you miss one, you keep driving around in circles to come back to it, or you go a little further and see if you can find another on-ramp if you want to get somewhere. And, and so it is, Jesus Christ is this raised way. He's the one that we lift up in our lives. And in fact, when you and I leave this place... We are one of the on-ramps for other people by the way we live, by the way we treat our spouses, by the way we raise our children, by the values we espouse, by the way we do excellent work, by the way we do business, by the way we handle our money. Everything about us is to be an on-ramp for people who, who need this highway of the Lord, this raised way. It's also a holy way. It's restricted for those who realize that we have to be cleansed in order to enter this way. And once cleansed, we are called to a life of righteousness and uprightness where we walk in the way of the Lord. Third, it is a safe way. There is no harm on this road. He talks about no ravenous beasts being there. Now, does that mean that we're always going to be protected from accident? No. Or cancer? No. Christians get heart disease and become diabetic. Tragedies happen to Christ's followers. We're in, we're in automobile accidents. All kinds of things happen. The difference is when we know we're walking on this highway, this way of the Lord, even if our very lives are taking away, what's that mean? It's the best day of our life when we get to be in the presence of the Lord. That's why this, it's an ultimate safety that he's talking about. It's a saving way. Those who are on this highway are redeemed. In other words, we've been rescued. The price has been paid for us because we were enslaved by sin. We, were, we had our addictions, and they are broken. We're out of that bondage of sin. It's the way we are saved by the blood of this Messiah that's to come. It is a straight way also. It, I, there, there is one destination. Isaiah says elsewhere, when Messiah comes, he's going to make the crooked ways straight. Has your life been marked by crooked turns and twists all over the page, all over the map, trying to figure it all out? The wonderful thing about Jesus Christ is his way is straight, and he will make the crooked straight. He gives us a destiny. He gives us, he gives us a place, a way to go. It's in the sole destination. The text says he calls it Zion. For the Jew of that day, Zion is Jerusalem. But it also becomes a metaphor for heaven itself. When I was a little boy, some of you grew up in the church. Remember that hymn we used to sing? We're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. The beautiful city of God. And that's what it is. It's a sure way. 
When you take this road, you are sure to reach your destination. Now, people will try all kinds of ways to get to God. And I can get on Interstate 70 and drive west, and I'm never going to get to Chicago because that interstate doesn't go to Chicago. I can be as sincere as I want to be, but that road doesn't go there. There's only one way to the Father, Jesus Christ. And I have to be on that road. It is a a straight way. It's a sure way to get there. It is a joyous way. He says here in the text, there's a lot of singing. I know what some of you think about singing. Why do we have to sing so much? Because it's so biblical. Right in the middle of the Bible, there's 150 hymns in the Psalms. That's what the Psalms are. They're songs that the Jews sang in worship. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says that we teach each other by the songs that we sing to each other. We encourage each other that way. Music is a part of our life. It's a music. It's a part of our life every other way. Why wouldn't it be a rich part? There's joy in us. It causes us to sing. And it's a glory way as well. In our, in our earlier verse, in verse 2, it says, they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. And he says here in these few verses that we're going to have crowns. And Paul, the apostle, speaks about, writes about in Timothy, his letter to Timothy, about the crown of righteousness that we'll all get. I don't know if that's a literal crown. You know, I doubt it, you know. But it's symbolic for the, for the, the reward we get for being faithful to him to the very end. You know, in the history of Israel, they were so used to being away from home. Because I think this text ultimately is about that. It's about the joy of being in a place called home. Don't we all want that? Even if you don't have that today, don't you want it? Don't you wish your home was a home of peace if it's not? Don't you wish you could have a Norman Rockwell painting kind of home? It's what our hearts want. Israel, the Jewish people, were used to that. Adam and Eve, what happened? They rebelled against God and they had to leave their home, Eden. Cain killed Abel, and what happened? What happened? God sent Cain away from his home. When, when uh, Abraham was called and given the covenant, what did he have to do? He had to leave his familiar home and follow the voice of God, the direction of God. When the Israelites left their, their slavery in Egypt, you know, in Egypt in slavery, they were away from home. Then when they left, they wandered for 40 years without a home till they got to the promised land. These captives that, that, are going to come, that are going to come about after the Assyrian, at the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities, they're going to be away from home. Yeah, even the Jews in Jesus' day sensed not being at home because they were under Roman rule, Roman authority, and they hated it. Home wasn't what they wanted to be. I think this text is all about that. It's about getting to this new heaven and new earth. The messianic age that we're in today, is, it, it, it's about being on our way home. It's about getting back to where we want to be. So this is a story not only of God and his people, it's a story of the human race as well. It's the story of the whole human race. Do you see that in the text here? Because here's our dilemma, homelessness. That that is the dilemma of the whole human race. The whole human race is in exile, homeless, because of sin. What is home? Well, we're home, first of all. Home is where everything fits. Everything you know what I mean. Everything suits you. When you, when, you, when you buy a new house or you move into an apartment or wherever you are, you, you put stuff where you want it, where it's accessible. And after you've moved it all in, you might change things around because it, it's just not working. You're not comfortable with things as they are. Home is where you have all your stuff, everything you need, everything feels right. 
You know, everything is good. Everything's in its place. Some of you have traveled internationally, or you travel for business. I I travel internationally, and I tell you, I like to go to see different places of the world, but it's not home. I like eating that food, but it's not my food. And if I eat too much foreign food, i got to find a McDonald's somewhere along the way just to have a little touch of home, you know. I'm weird, I know, but that's just how it is. Uh, You know, I, I might have a good bed, but you know, it's not my bed. And there's something about coming back home and feeling at home with my stuff. You know, home is the place where you're nourished. Home is the place where you're most at ease with yourself. It's a place that's a refuge that suits you. That's what home is. Literal homelessness is brutal. And so is life without God. Life without God is brutal. And it And it beats you up. It wears you down. And our world as it is now fallen, it doesn't fit our deepest needs. It can't meet the longings of our heart. It can't give us hope. It can't give us peace. It can't give us joy. It can't give us security and serenity. It can't do that because it's fallen. Everything's a mess. And so no matter how good our government is, no matter how stellar our education system is, no matter how wonderful our arts community is, whatever it is, it's never going to be at home because it's, it's a fallen world. So, what do we do? Psalm 90 says this. Lord, you have been our dwelling place through all generations. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This is the truth. We're home when we delight in God. That's what being home is. Home is when we delight in God. If we're not doing that, our lives are never going to fit. We're, 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 going to be work, we're going to work somehow to make it all fit and to think we can handle it. You know, one of the lies that, that, that a person fighting addiction deals with is, I can handle this. I can handle this. I knew an addict and he was told, you know, you know where this is all ending, either rehab or death. And I asked him, how, how, why didn't you believe that? He said, because I think addicts think they can handle it. We think, but you know, that's the dilemma of the human race. We all believe we can handle life and make it worth and be as it is supposed to. We think that's all, it's all going to come together by my own doing. Messiah came to make all things right. He came to bring us home. That's why he came. We so sanitize the Christmas story, don't we? I tell you, there is nothing, there is nothing lovely about the Christmas story. Here is Joseph and Mary, already scorned for their position. Imagine Mary, probably 14 or 15 years old, comes up pregnant. Joseph says, it's not mine, it's God's. Yeah, right. How, big, how well did that go over? They lived under that. The census is ordered by the governor. You can imagine Mary saying to Joseph, at this stage... Toward the end of my third trimester, and now we have to go to Bethlehem? What, what happens if... Don't, don't talk about it, Joseph. Don't, I don't want to think about it. We'll get back. We'll back at, I promise. I'll get you back home. They get to Bethlehem, and they are not Braxton Hicks. They're, he says, count again. <laughs> and so here they are, away from home. They can't find anybody to take them in. It's a packed city, town. The only place somebody happens to offer is a stable. 
So we sing Silent Night. We had these little manger scenes, twinkling stars. But it's better to picture a frightened teenage girl away from any support with the smell of animal manure and urine, nothing sterile, no epidural, screams, blood on the ground. What is sweet about that? The Christmas story is all about pain and hardship and struggle. It all is a, is a preview, a symbol of the radical lack of hospitality Jesus would meet when he began his ministry at age 30. And door after door was slammed in his face, as is true today as well. It all breaks your heart. Jesus said in Matthew 8, Foxes have dens, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus was born homeless so that you and I could have a home. He died forsaken so that we could be brought in. You see, sin leaves us homeless. It leaves us nomads. Jesus Christ came to experience utter homelessness so that we might have a place with his Father. He died, he came born and laid away, away from his home, away in a manger. And 33 years of age, he died also away on a cross, away from his Father, away outside the city walls, the Hebrew writer tells us, left leaving his ultimate home to give us one, utter aloneness so we could be brought in. You see, if, if a person doesn't believe Jesus was truly the Son of God, there is nothing inspiring about this. It's only inspiring if you really believe this is God who's became flesh. It's also the story of the difference Christ makes. You want to know the joy of being home with God? It requires at least these four things. Number one, becoming weak. That's what Jesus did. He became weak. He was roughly handled by his critics. He gave up his rights, his rights to be in charge and be in control, and he became a servant. And it's still how people connect with him. Unless you're willing to become a servant of his, we have no place in the kingdom of God. We have to become like him. Mary's spirit was so overwhelming. You know, she, she was overwhelmed by the message of the angel. You're going to, have, you're going to give birth to, to God's son. Well, I, I'm a virgin. And, and, and the angel says, the, the Holy Spirit of God's going to come upon you. You will be with child. And she finally just says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you've said. That's what God's looking for in us, friends. He's looking for that spirit in us saying, God, today, I'm, just your, I'm your servant. Who do you want me to be? How do you want me to be? Let me rest in you and you alone. Some of you are going through hard times in your life. You just keep saying, God, I, all I can say is I'm your servant. I'll be whatever you want me to be. I'm here. See, see, so much of our world is about mustering ourselves up to be. Every other religion is about that. You know, get, get, get the gumption in you to be the person you need to be. Not here. It's about forgetting yourself. It's the, it's the admission of being empty and bankrupt spiritually. Do you remember the days 
Some of you are too young, but several years ago, we had glamour shots in the mall. Remember that? Oh, man. I went and made a visit on a family visiting us. It's been long enough now I can tell it without the danger of them being in the audience, you know. But, but I, I was, it was probably 15 years ago, and so I'm, I'm leaving. I won't tell you what street they live in. I can tell you that, what the house is. But anyway, I, I'm leaving, and there's a glamour shot by the front door. I'm not very smart. And so I said, whoa, who's that? She said, it's me. I don't think I won them with Jesus to Jesus that night. Uh, but, you know, that's sort of how we do life. We're like people appearing as glamour shots to the world, making sure our blemishes are covered, making sure everything looks better than it really is. And is it really? It's not. And the more we can see ourselves in our ugliness next to the holiness of God, the better off we're going to be. You have to become weak. Being rejected is also include, included. You know, if, if you, have, you have people in your life that don't get you because you're in church this morning, they don't get you and the, and the values you hold to at work or what you espouse, good for you. Jesus said, if the world hates me, you know they're going to hate you. There, there's always going to be disdain for, for Christ's followers, always. So if you have people in your life like that, good for you. you you're identifying with Jesus. Third, you have to identify with the weak. I think that's part of being home with God. We have, to, we have to identify with the Isn't that hard to do? Do you find that difficult to do? I find that terribly difficult. You know, he came to us poor, helpless, homeless. If he came that way, doesn't mean he, he did that to identify with me far away from God. Then shouldn't I be willing to do that because he did that for me? And I tell you, brothers and sisters, I am so bad. I am so yet evil within me because I don't. And I can tell you this, and I testify this to you. I'm embarrassed to tell you this story. I'm sitting in a coffee shop this week. I'm working on this sermon. And in this coffee shop comes a homeless person who reeks to high heaven. And my first thought, oh, I hope he sits somewhere else. And right there in the light of God's word, I saw my ugliness next to Christ's holiness. I heard of a church recently whose prayer is, God, bring us all the people that nobody else wants. Could we pray that? I, I'm not sure what that would mean. It's a scary prayer, isn't it? It's a scary prayer. But may God grant us the courage to pray that kind of prayer. Henry Nguyen was a professor at Yale and Harvard. He's a priest. And uh, the last 10 years of his life, he lived in community with those who were severely disabled physically, mentally, emotionally. And he met a guy named Trevor who was at another psychiatric hospital getting evaluated. He wanted to go see Trevor, so he, he called Trevor, or called the hospital. He said, I want to come visit Trevor. He said, sure. Is this, is this Dr. Henry Newen? And he said, yes. Yeah. Oh, if you're coming, would you please speak to us at lunch while you're here or something? Could you do that? And Dr. Newman said, well, yeah, I'd be happy to do that. So Dr. Newman made his way over there, went into the, the room where the, all the staff eats, called the golden room. 
And he greeted people. And he looked around. And he said, I don't, I don't see Trevor anywhere. He said, oh, oh, the patients can't come in here. This is just for the medical people. And administration. He said, well, I came. I came for Trevor. I didn't come really for this. I'm glad to do this, but I'm really here for Trevor. Well, you, know, you, you can't come in here. And he said, well, I, I don't think I want to speak. Oh, no, you must speak. He said, well, I just, I, I really want Trevor. I mean, it's the only way I'm going to speak. Okay, well, we'll get Trevor. And so for the first time, they brought a patient in, Trevor. And when Dr. Nguyen wasn't noticing, Trevor stood up and he held up his Coke glass and started singing. If you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. And people, you can imagine this, this upper echelon in the medical community feeling very awkward. And he kept singing. And so all these medical people started raising their glasses and sang with him. If you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. And somebody witnessing all that said, you know, God will use the most unlikely people to get your attention. And he does that. And that's why we need to be a part of those who are difficult to love and to walk with. Because that's who Jesus was. And making God first, I've said it already today, if anything is more important in your life than God, and the, the, the sneaky part about it is, is we can think God's first and we can say God's first when in practice he isn't. And we've got to figure out and examine our, and welcome God's spirit to see us and to evaluate us and help us know what's out of, out of whack. You know, the, the, this is the real trouble with homelessness. You know, there, there, there are some homeless people, you've heard of them, who like being homeless. That's their bridge. They don't, they, don't, they, don't want to put, they don't want the responsibility of a house or a job. They like home. Not, not all homeless people, not most homeless people are like that. But there are some. And you know, that's the dangerous part of, of what sin does. We can become so comfortable in sin that we like our homelessness away from God. We're comfortable there. And it's too frightening to think to have a responsibility and a relationship with him. Is there anybody here that's far away from God today? Homeless because you've never yielded him? I tell you, you're missing what real home can be. And when you have that home, you'll be able to say with millions of others who have gone before you, I'm finally home. I belong. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, remind us today of the glory of God and the brilliance of the Messiah who's come, Christ the Lord. And I pray none of us will miss him. None of us will get on an off-ramp. We'll stay on the highway. I pray for those, Father, today who may be far away from being at home with God. I pray for those of us, Father, who think all is well, and it's not, that we'll have the, the courage to face ourselves and be who you want us to be. Bring us home. In Jesus' name, amen.